0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty.
1: Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm really excited to ask you a few questions and learn from you today. So I want to jump right in. Can you start us off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan?
0: Sure. Thank you for asking me. My name is Richard Rood. I am often known as Ricky Rood. I'm a professor in the Department of Climate and Space Sciences and Engineering, as well as being appointed in the School of Environment and Sustainability. Uh, my primary research since I've come to Michigan has been on climate change, climate change and its interfaces with different aspects of society, and how to use or how to accelerate the use of climate information in planning and design and in management.
1: Fascinating. Thank you. So, how do you use climate change information to educate students on climate change problem solving, especially when you're teaching students who are from a variety of areas of study?
0: The courses and the ultimately the program in applied climate that I helped to get started was motivated actually first by a set of students that were in the business school as well as in the School of Public Policy. And shortly after I got to Michigan, they asked me to start a course on climate change and its interfaces with business and economics policy. And once that course got started, it became apparent that there's this real problem of, of scientists producing information and claiming that that information is useful. However, that information, that knowledge is really not getting taken up and used. And we started to talk about that in terms of of usability. And so I started collaborations with many people, including Maria Carmen Lemos, And with Maria Carmen Lemos, we ultimately were two of the people who were in the co-founding of the Great Lakes Integrated Sciences and Assessment Project, GLISA, which is housed at both Michigan and Michigan State, which is very much focused on usability. When we started that, we started to engage with clients. And then once you start to do that, you begin to understand that those sciences might produce this knowledge. How to use that knowledge, what to do with that knowledge is got many barriers in it. It's often not what we call salient or irrelevant to the problems that folks have at hand. Often the uncertainty is so large that they don't really know how to manage the uncertainty and then the uncertainty is in context with other sources of uncertainty that they have for example you know what budget will they have to to address climate change so it becomes apparent that the literature on what is called iterative problem solving or co-development where scientists are working in teams with other disciplines other organizations other individuals that the scientists are part of the team and it's a job of translating or trying to fit the climate information in the context of those particular problems and as you do that you know what you see with climate change is that they're in interrelationships there are tensions uh, they're everywhere And if you want to get climate change inserted into the designing and the planning and the thinking, then it's this problem really almost of negotiation, problem of communication, problem of continuity. And by continuity, I mean staying on subject and building from, from successes that you have. And and so it's just how do you translate and how do you fit that climate information, uh, that climate knowledge, I, I should say, rather than information. One of the things that um, became very apparent early on is that the quantitative information that comes out of climate models is 99% of the time Not especially usable by these clients, then the clients, you know, would be folks like urban planners, for example, public health um, administrators or public health expert as another example policymakers, the quantitative information is just not very useful for them so we gravitated more towards what we would call expert guidance, perhaps coming through a technique called scenario planning, where we develop plausible scenarios of the future. And with those plausible scenarios, we match them with some management decisions with the goal of thinking through how do you think you would respond to the vulnerabilities and the risks that are revealed by these scenarios.
1: Thank you so much for explaining that. Can you explain applied climate? Can you explain what that is and how the Masters of Engineering and Applied Climate Program at U of M is unique?
0: When we started the Applied Climate Program, the idea was that the students would both get a certain set of skills that were good for not only applied climate, but for other potential applications. For example, students would get skills in geographical information systems. That skill is not normally part of a climate education, but if you think about climate change and you think about where the impacts are going to be felt, it's always geographical in some way or another. So the one idea that there was a certain set of skills, and one of the things that has, you know, occurred in the last decade or so, is that students are getting the geographical information skills from from a number of places, but we had skills associated with Geographical information systems, as well as statistics and understanding regional modeling. So there was a core of climate science that we were interested in the students having. But our real focus and our unique focus was specifically taking science-literate, science-strong, quantitatively trained students and starting to really address this problem of translation and how do you fit the knowledge to the clients. So one of the aspects of the Applied Climate Program was to have students working with a client that brings in a real-world problem. And when a client brings in a real-world real world problem gets very messy because you know some clients are very sophisticated they know what they're trying to do some clients are less sophisticated they just know that climate change is something they need to worry about and so students then get experience of being connected to this whole portfolio of clients at different levels of sophistication on climate change so when you bring in all of these clients, what you see is this need for multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary problem solving, or what you might call, you know, problem solving at the interfaces. And, and so this really starts to make students make professors, my clients, think about, you know, how do you actually communicate this material and and help get it tuned um, for these real-world problems?
1: You recently authored an article for The Conversation that provides insights into how we could stop the earth from warming. Can you explain how our understanding of the Earth's warming has changed over time?
0: That article in the conversation was about really a thought experiment that has become somewhat fashionable in our field for people to think about, which is if you manage to turn off fossil fuel burning and all of the other things that we're doing to cause the planet to warm, how fast would we see the peak? Would we see the peak You know, in one year, 10 years, 40 years, 100 years? And when we talk about the peak in that sense, we're talking about the peak surface air temperature. If you start to really think about the climate, then what we're really doing is we're seeing the accumulation of heat over at this point, many decades, that is being caused primarily by the increases of carbon dioxide and methane. And this accumulation of heat is doing things like melting ice, but most of that heat is going into the ocean. And once that heat is in the ocean, it can come back to the atmosphere or it might be carried you know, deeper into the ocean. But once it's in the ocean, it's it's a It's in a dynamic system, which causes the atmospheric temperature to fluctuate uh, very strongly dependent upon heat coming into and going out of the ocean. So I think one of the important things that has changed in climate science and our understanding of it in the last 10 to 15 years is really this point of accumulation of heat in the environment. And this accumulation of heat means that um, you know all of the extra heat that we've been storing for the last you know especially the last 50 years because of the huge increase in carbon dioxide all of that heat is going to be around with us for uh, many decades and you know indeed for for centuries so So the idea that uh, the climate has warmed, uh, it's going to stay warm and that we really have to be rethinking our relationship with the environment, whether it's our built environment, whether it's ecosystems, whether it's agricultural systems. We are in a time, we are at the beginning of a time of extraordinarily rapid transition. And the way we are going to be able to cope with this is to really appreciate not only that this warming will continue once it does manage to um, you know quit increasing because we might get carbon dioxide and methane under control, it's going to stay with us. We're not gonna go back 30 years or 50 years, and everything is is going to have to change. And so that's what I'm trying to get our students really seriously think about is, is how do you do well in that environment of accelerating warming, the associated changes in precipitation, and what's going to be huge disruptions across the planet, the rises in sea level.
1: And expanding on that, uh, rising sea levels, you also in the article, which we will link to in our show notes, you also discuss the how the temperature of the climate will impact the future of our oceans. Can you just briefly expand on the relationship between large changes in carbon dioxide and temperature and its impact on the ocean
0: so the carbon dioxide is essentially acting like a blanket and what we're doing is we're making say if you were in bed on a cold night you're putting more blankets on and you know each increase in carbon dioxide is putting more more of that blanket there And what that blanket does is it holds energy, it holds heat near the surface. And when it's held near the surface, then that heat can better enter the ocean. And so the vast majority, I think the number is somewhere around 90% of the heat that is being held of that excess heat coming from carbon dioxide and also methane, I think it's important to make sure is in the conversation because methane is at very high levels and it's a very potent greenhouse gas. That heat is going into the ocean. Now, as that heat goes into the ocean, a lot of things happen. Um, one, as I said, in the answer to the previous question, and it can be transferred back and forth between the atmosphere and the ocean. The other thing it can do is that heat can go and where it touches um, glaciers coming off of Greenland and Antarctica, which in many cases end in the ocean and in some cases are actually below sea level because they're so heavy and they've pushed the, the land down. That heat in the ocean from underneath can accelerate the flow and the melting and the breaking up of those glaciers and ice sheets. But there are many other things that happen. Just heating water um, expands it and raises sea level. And so for the last hundred years, just the fact that we've increased the heat in the ocean has expanded the water and raised sea level. Now we're adding on top of that, the water coming off of the melting ice sheets. So that's just part of the physical climate. The heat in the ocean affects how well the the ocean can absorb carbon dioxide. The ocean is also a a big sink of carbon dioxide. But if very much like if you had a, a glass of beer or a bottle of soda, and you got it warm it can't hold that carbon dioxide as 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 well as it could the carbon dioxide you know that's carbonating those beverages so if the ocean is getting warmer it is potentially releasing some of the carbon dioxide that's already stored there it reduces the ability of the ocean to absorb carbon dioxide and then you could take it even further if you wanted to, which is um, as carbon dioxide is absorbed in the ocean, it ends up uh, bec- making the ocean more acidic. And then that dissolves, say, the, the shells of, of of phytoplankton and zooplankton, as well as, you know, lar- larger celled animals, you know, larger animals that that have calcium shells and and so it influences the the biology of the ocean both through the acidity as well as as the the temperature. So really, you know, if we got to go back, you know, two or three hundred years and think about climate, we we might be better off defining the ocean at the center of climate because that's where so much of the energy is so much of the heat ends up and then think of the the atmosphere and what's happening to to humans in relationship to that oceanic aspect of climate but you know climate really grew out of the study of atmosphere and weather you know, the definition of climate is average weather. That's uh, one imperfect definition of climate is average weather. There was a lot of interesting glaciers uh, as climate came out. So climate has this very strong relationship to um, the atmosphere, to weather, and to humans. But if you think about it in terms of the energy and and where things are ending up, uh, the ocean is really perhaps the the most central aspect of the climate system.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I, I want to ask, based on that really detailed and thorough explanation, and also considering your work in climate change knowledge, how important is it to translate this information that is learned so that the general public and policymakers and others can understand what is happening, what this knowledge is and share that and be a part of that. How important is that public engagement by scientists?
0: My experience, my my behavior, my choice is that public engagement by scientists is critical at this point in our evolution of our society and the way we work want to make one distinction at least, which is when I started to think about this problem and when we started the applied climate, we were thinking about our target audience being professionals, perhaps in policy, public health, urban planning, forestry. And that is a different uh, public, a different um, communication than the public as, as a whole. So that that's a different problem than the general public, the discussion with the professionals. But the reason I got started really in the public engagement is the second year I was teaching, I was asking students, where are you getting your information? And in 2007, no one was getting their information from the nightly news on TV or from newspapers or from the radio. Everybody was getting their information from blogs. And so I started blogging and Weather Underground gave me a great venue to blog, which I did for them for more than 10 years. So one part of it was making sure that we were getting good information out there and it seemed as if there was a responsibility of scientists who were inclined to do that and had an ability to write in a relatively concise and expository way to to maybe take on that role. One of the reasons I've continued is that the style that I had, I found out that Congressional staffers in Washington were reading my blogs, I found out that legislators in Lansing were reading my blogs, and occasionally I would even get a request, they would say, here's a problem that we don't know how to um, analyze, and I would write a blog that would essentially be an analysis that would help them. And so I felt as if they were of value and of having influence. And there's so much advocacy. There's so much disinformation. There's so much misinformation. I felt it was good to try to frame myself as somebody who would do a fair analysis and present evidence based information or evidence based knowledge for folks to use and to act on.
1: Such great public engagement work that you've been doing for uh, so long, and I really appreciate you sharing this knowledge and explaining all of these really complex problems and the work that you're doing. So, Dr. Rood, thank you so much for your time and for joining Michigan Minds today.
0: You're welcome, and thank you for asking me. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.